Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we think that helps us draw more power out of them and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm so happy to have with me a, a new colleague and uh, a friend, uh, Dr. Phil Abbott, uh, who is a visiting professor at BYU in the same department I'm in. Uh, Phil has just finished his PhD from Stanford in New Testament studies, I believe. Did I get that right? Uh, early Christianity. Early Christianity. That's right. Okay. Uh, before that at Yale and before that at Pepperdine and uh, working on uh, master's degrees. And I believe before that uh, in Provo at, at BYU. So did I get it all yep. right? Yep. Yep. That's correct. And I know he also has uh, musical interests, and so does his wife. We'll let him tell you about that. And uh, so just welcome, Phil. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So tell um, us a little bit more about yourself. So, yeah, I, I just uh, graduated from Stanford uh, in early Christianity. Um, I did my dissertation on the soundscape or the kind of acoustic landscape of early Christianity. Um, before Stanford, I was at Yale where I studied New Testament studies um, with a minor in Old Testament studies. Before that, I was at Pepperdine uh, where I did another master's in uh, New Testament. And then before that, I, I earned a uh, bachelor's of music at BYU in cello performance. And that's where I met my wife. She did a uh, bachelor's in violin performance. Um, she went on to uh, continue doing the music route and I switched uh, and went more into ancient uh, studies so she continues to string things out but you uh, yeah you, she you does know. yes yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> although i guess you strung your education out so it's all fair yeah but, yeah i definitely did not uh, go the uh, quick route on that one so and she still plays professionally right she does she's currently uh still a member of the atlanta symphony um and uh yeah, so she does a lot of flying back and forth uh, between Utah and Atlanta right now. Um, so yeah, we're we're working that out right now. Yeah, it's all all fun to pursue all sorts of dreams. And for those, I have most of our audience can't see, but for those who can, uh, that's why you see a bunch of empty shelves behind Phil because his books are still in Atlanta. So, um, well, we we hope that one day they come out with the violin. So yeah, yeah, well, we hope. <laughs> anyway, well. It's good to have you with us, and uh, we're talking about Ephesians today. So, Phil, why don't you just take us? Uh, you know, where what what about Ephesians has spoken to you? What has become real to you? Where does this become powerful, or uh, anything along those lines? Where would you like us to go? Um, well, I started uh, really studying Ephesians when I was at Yale. I took a course on uh, Ephesians with Greg Sterling, who is writing a um, a commentary on Ephesians um, for Hermeneia commentary series which that's a long project he's been working on it for probably 10 to 15 years um and so i really i had the opportunity to sit down with him and really uh, learn this text from one of the experts um and uh it really you know before studying it i knew a few things about ephesians the you know kind of the things you learn in scripture mastery you know the the uh foundation of apostles and prophets and putting on the armor of god Right. Um, but as I really got, you know, deeper into the text, it became so much richer and deeper than I, uh, anticipated. And that's when so, it gets fun, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, what I love about Ephesians is the, um, it's, it's a very beautiful text. Uh, it's, it's, uh, most of Pauline writings are, uh, written in short sentences, 
um, that are written for certain communities and addressing certain occasional uh, concerns. So you have like in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, these are written to specific people uh, at specific times dealing with specific situations that we don't necessarily have background on. Um, but Ephesians is different. Uh, if you read in, in Ephesians chapter 1, 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. But the word in Ephesus, um, the words in Ephesus in Greek, it's in Ephesus. Those are missing in the earliest and best manuscripts. Um, right. And so it's likely that this is a general letter. Um, and whether it's by Paul or not is debatable. Um, and people come down on different sides of that. I don't know that there's a lot of evidence either way. Uh, so I kind of just assume that it's Pauline. Uh, and I treat it as if it's by Paul, but I don't uh, I don't really have a strong opinion necessarily. To me, it's scripture, regardless of whether it's by Paul. Yeah, yeah, um, it's inspired one way or the other. It certainly has exactly. uh, addresses a lot of the same themes that a lot of his other epistle, epistles address. But uh, I would guess that anyone writing to any of those groups would need to touch on those same themes. So. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and so I think uh, what we have here is is an actual general epistle um, that could be by Paul, uh, and we don't we don't have that uh, in the canon. This would be the only general epistle by Paul, so we don't. So explain what you mean by general epistle, then. Well, so you have um, the epistle to the Romans is written to the Romans. The epistle to first uh, first Thessalonians is written to the people in Thessaloniki. Uh, this would be written to everyone. This is not. This does not have greetings at the end. It is not written for a specific community dealing with specific problems. So you get kind of more of a bird's eye view um, and more of a general message to everybody. And you don't necessarily as much have to reconstruct the uh, situation on the ground uh, because we're not dealing with certain specific issues that Paul became aware of and that he had to address. Wonderful. This is instead probably written to everyone. And so in a way, you could say it's maybe easily more easily applicable to us. Um, and be because of that also, it, it has a certain message that I think is really uh, important for the church as a whole, not specifically to one specific church. Good. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, uh, so just working through the text really quickly. So I, I just, at the beginning, I've got a uh, Admit So I did a, a translation of this that was published in BYU Studies. Um, I kind of just worked from my own translation uh, just because I spent a lot of time working mm -hmm. through it and thinking about kind of how I would want to word things. Um, and Ephesians is a very uh, difficult text to translate in some regards because the um, the sentence lengths, they're, they're so long. So like in, in chapter one, you have three sentences. The average sentence length is about 130 words. That's so, long even for me. Uh, so I spent a long time really working through that, trying to make it flow. I think sometimes in the King, in the King James, it's a little difficult to really follow where it's going, uh, because I think any translation of this is, is challenging. Um, but I kind of know why I made certain decisions, so I kind of stick with my own version. Uh, but obviously, you know, each text has its own, um, you know, strengths and weaknesses. Um, so the, the beginning of the letter begins with uh, what's called a barakah or a, a blessing. Uh, praises God for, for the blessings that he's uh, invoked on, on his people. 
um, and talks about this pre-ordination. I, I put pre-ordination in my translation because I think predestination and foreordination are both pretty loaded terms. So right. I thought, let's go with pre-ordination so we don't impose certain meanings on the text that isn't necessarily uh, meant to be in the original. Um, but you have this kind of this really flowery, beautiful language where it's it's ambiguous where certain uh, prepositions are supposed to go uh, and, and where certain prepositional clauses are supposed to go. So, for instance, you have at the end of verse six it says to the praise of his glory, grace, which he graced upon us in his beloved in him. Some translations have and that's really clunky or you have in him in the next verse in him. We have redemption through his blood. There are a lot of places like that where you could you could take the phrase the the prepositional phrase to go with the previous clause or with the after the clause uh, following that. Right. Anyway, right. this is a, a it's a beautiful kind of praising of, of God and the uh, you know what God has done th through Christ for us. Um, to me, the meat of it though is is not in this beginning part, but really once you get into uh, the latter part of chapter one and then into chapter two, three and four. Um, and so Ephesians has, um, and stop me if you want to talk about anything in, in between. I, but I, Ephesians don't has, worry, I will. So, yeah. Okay, good. Ephesians has this, uh, this notion that we call realized eschatology, which means um, that the eschaton or the end uh, is kind of been realized, at least the way that it is written. It describes it like that. So, for instance, uh, it says, you know, you have been saved. We have conquered uh, death through Christ. Uh, the, the end is, has sort of been realized. And I think um, in my reading of it, it's sort of like um, in the temple where we will talk about things as if they have already come to pass. Uh, right. But not necessarily in that sense. And I actually think that Ephesians is written for sort of a ritual context. Uh where you kind of have this, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, I think. But the um, you have this uh, this movement probably um, as you go through the text, uh, and you're probably participating uh, in worship as you're reading the text in the original um, uh, setting. Yeah, and I think that that uh, I, that's what, I like your selection of the word preordained because you're right. I I don't know that we're for, really talking about foreordained here. I don't think it's predestination the way that's often thought of, but I think that that's part of the the notion of this. Okay, we're speaking as if this had already happened, uh, and in a way that is foreordination. So, for example, uh, when I try and help people understand pre-mortal foreordination, I, I talk about the temple because that's a foreordination that we're familiar with. We're we're promised there that we'll receive eternal life, and we know full well that some people who receive that promise won't receive eternal life because they're going to break their covenants. I hope few, but I, I suspect it's going to happen. And and so we understand that as a foreordination. Okay, the, because of what you're, you're covenanting here, God will covenant with you that you can receive this, and most will, maybe some will, I don't know, but I'm not going to get into percentages, but uh, uh, it, it it will happen for the faithful, and faithful is a big phrase for Paul, and, and we'll see it in this text as well, but um, that notion that uh, the promises that he's talking about and the the difference between who they were and what they're becoming, I think, is, is a faith-filled view. It's approaching it with an eye of faith. Like, it, it, clearly, they're in the middle of it, 
in their mortality because we all are. But Paul is speaking, I think, both about the real changes that have already happened and the real changes that will happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, you kind of see this in the letter because he does kind of alternate between this realized eschatology or, you know, we have been saved to this is how you need to act in the future. So you kind of have this both past and future view uh, in this in this text, which I think is really interesting. Um, So maybe let me propose, if it's all right, another idea that I think can kind of go along um, with that. And maybe we I'll just propose that you don't have to agree or disagree. You can agree or disagree, but we can also just kind of test drive it as we go through the the text. Um, I, sometimes as I read this, I have the feeling that um, Paul is talking a little bit of the way at least I read King Benjamin, which is not how we usually read King Benjamin. When you get King Benjamin's people saying, uh, we have no more desire to do good, but to do uh, or to do evil, but to do good continually and so on. Right. And and it sounds like they're done. But then the next thing King Benjamin says is, well, that's good. And you're going to have to keep working at this, mm-hmm. right? you got to watch what you're saying. you got to watch what you're thinking and so on and so on. He knows it's, you've had this amazing moment that really has changed you, but you're not done. So in a way, we could say that King Benjamin's people were saved. They were new creatures in Christ. They were different, but it's not a one-time deal. There's this enduring to the end idea. There's this being born again and again and again and again idea and uh, I think that may also be a little bit of what we're we're seeing in Ephesians as well. So that's just my opinion that we we're, we probably have a little bit of the you have been changed, but you're not done being changed, and the change yeah. isn't going to stick forever. You're going to have to keep having it come back, and hopefully in ascending spirals. Yeah, and I think you you see that especially in the Greek, it's kind of emphasized several times. You have this uh, the word pote, which is like once or when. And then you have noon, which is now. And it's like, at one time we were like this and now right. we are changed. Yes. Uh, so you you find this a lot in, in early Christian texts, but especially here in Ephesians, there's this kind of differentiation between who you once were and who you now are in Christ. Wow. And, and it's you, powerful. You see that. Yeah. And, and you see that in, in chapter two, um, where at the beginning talks about, you know, you were once dead and you now have become alive in Christ. Yeah. Uh, and it's a it's a very beautiful thing because at the end of chapter one, there's this this uh, kind of doxology type thing or this kind of glorification of what Jesus has done for us. And then it talks about in chapter two, we also have conquered through Christ. We we've conquered with him now. Uh, we, uh, we we sit in heaven with him uh, and and we we glory in his in his greatness. Uh, the, the in the in the Greek, it talks about the grace that he's graced upon us. Uh, his, yeah, he's great, uh, and that's that's Charis, right? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which uh, my audience has heard uh, Brent Schmidt, so I'll just remind them of that episode. Brent Schmidt uh, talk about this relational grace uh, idea that that he talked about. So anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah, um, what I really find uh, invigorating about Ephesians is really in chapters two, three, and four. Uh, especially once you get into uh, chapter 11 of, of or verse 11 of chapter two, where he starts getting into temple imagery. Now, this is this is a letter that's written to uh, Gentiles. And the reason why we know that is because he talks often about, you know, you once walked like the Gentiles, people they, that are called uncircumcised in the flesh. But now you walk, um, you know, in a, in a more holy manner. And here we get into temple imagery in, in uh, verse 12. 
says maybe, that, maybe uh, if it's all right sorry i don't yeah. I, 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 but before we get there maybe i, I could just uh, hit on one thing in chapter one and then let's jump in mm -hmm. where you want yeah, to go please. in chapter two but i think it has to do with what we were just talking about and it's this notion we can go to verse 14 and i'll read from the king james version because i don't have your sure. translation in front of me um i don't know why you didn't send it to me that was a, 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 <laughs> a short side of both of us yeah no, i'm just joking um anyway uh but in verse 14 he talks about well first of all we've got uh Verse 11 is where we talk about having an, an, an inheritance because we're preordained. I like how you say that. Um, according to the purpose of him who worketh after the counsel of his own will, and we give praise to and glory uh, who first trusted in Christ. And verse 13, you know, we've trusted in their salvation and we believed. And then we get you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which some members of the church take to mean, okay, your your exaltation has made sure. I'm not sure that's what it means here. We sometimes get these phrases that are used one way in, in one context, and we assume that everyone who ever used that phrase always meant it the same way, and I'm not sure that that's always mm -hmm. uh, justified. But then we get this verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And uh, I, we talked uh, in an earlier episode about this idea of earnest money, right? Which I think is the, the same notion that's being used here. God is, he seems to be saying, God has given you a change, a promise by the Holy Spirit. So I think there is a promise by the Holy Spirit. Uh, my guess, I mean, we're promised uh, all sorts of things when we're baptized and in the temple as we go into covenants. And I think this plays into where you're going to take us with the temple text, but um, we're promised all sorts of things and the spirit, you know, is there for that. Um, but it's, a, it's earnest money. This is the change that we have right now. The gifts that we have right now is just a down payment on what God is going to make us into. And uh, I think that that's a wonderful preface for uh, going through the, the uh, temple ideas that I, I think is where we're going to go. But uh, just in general, the change that is talked about again and again in Ephesians uh, and the kind of in the messy middle of that change that we were just talking about, I think having like an earnest uh, endowment of, of power and gift from God is a good way of thinking of that. It's promises yeah. of things to come. And I like I like how you said down payment money. I think that's a good translation of arabon, which is the Greek word. I think that's a really good. It's it's a good it's a down payment of our inheritance. It's this kind of just foretaste almost. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, yeah, we get those those moments right where we feel the spirit so strongly that we're full of joy and good desires, and then we're back in the the real world and the rubber's hitting the road. But that that was just a taste of what our future is really like. And it's a really delicious taste. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, right. Sorry you, that I interrupted you. We can no, jump no, back that, where you were wanting to go. Great. That's great. Yeah. So if you, if you look in chapter uh, two uh, verses, so starting in verse 11 talks about, uh, so it says, you know, once you guys were Gentiles in the flesh, I didn't translate you guys, but uh, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by those so-called circumcision, which is done by flesh, by human hands. Remember that in that time you were separate from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then here it talks about, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it's, this is drawing on temple imagery where you would have, of course, this cult, this uh, court of, of Gentiles that was farther away from the holy place. Um, and, you know, the Gentiles could not enter into, you know, the court of, of Israelites 
nearer in. And this is talking about, you know, Christ has really, his, his flesh has abolished this dividing wall, uh, which is beautiful. It talks about how, you know, it reminds me actually of, of, uh, you know, at Christ's death, when he, when the, the, uh, the yeah. veil in the temple tears open and sort of makes accessible God's presence in the temple to all people. Yeah. I think it might be the most powerful symbol in that whole story is that upon Christ's death, suddenly God is available. Yeah. And I, I love too, when, you know, in the gospel of Mark, how it's the centurion that says, you know, surely this man is the son of God. It's the, yeah. the non-Israelite and it's almost like heaven is now open to all people. You see that same idea here in Ephesians where Christ has broken down this dividing wall and his flesh has abolished hostility between Jew and Gentile. Uh, and now we're all one. We can be all one in Christ. In fact, I, I would read it. And some of this is, you know, if we were to continue on like the verse 16 and so on, but I think, I think he's saying that he has made reconciliation possible on a number of fronts. Jew and Gentile or non-covenant and what would have been thought of as covenant holder, but now they can both be covenant holders. And that combined with Christ makes it so that all of us can be reconciled with God, right? So he's the great reconciler, making it possible for everyone to come together, which I think is the, and I'll be like you, I'll just say, I assume it's Paul. So I think that's what Paul is really driving at in this epistle is let's leave the world and the divisions of the world behind. Let's come together and come to God through Christ. And yeah, and I think uh, that's what it's saying here in at the end in verse 19 and 20 of chapter of chapter two, where you have, uh, you know, we're no longer foreigners and strangers, we're fellow citizens. And then what you were just mentioning about Jesus, uh, so it talks about how we're built on this foundation of apostles and prophets. And then it talks about how Christ Jesus is the uh, either the cornerstone or the keystone. It's actually and uh, not totally clear in the Greek. I actually lean toward keystone because of the way that this word is used um, in uh, in in certain texts, like the Testament of Solomon talks about uh, building this temple and then build and putting this uh, this stone right at the top, the keystone here. Right. Um, Although he may so be that, making an Isaiah allusion, which would be corner. So yeah, okay. decent arguments yeah. either way. But yeah, yeah. it's. It, I put Keystone and I was about 55% sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll you, go you know, with I it. went back and forth. Regardless, either way, it's really that he's really kind of the the uh the cherry on top here that kind of that right. is that, the, that holds the, it together or that it's built yeah. on, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's exactly. depending on Keystone or Cornerstone, Cornerstone is still the same idea. Right, right, right. Um but really in chapter three, uh, well, and, and maybe I'll just uh, re yeah, remark there on, on verse 19. I think you get the, and you were reading it, but that, that sums up kind of what I was saying a little bit earlier. You're not strangers and foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. So it's everyone being sanctified together and of the household of God. So all of us now being with God in God's place, right? So it's that, that great double reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think what happens in, in chapter three really builds on what we have in chapter two, where you have this breaking down of the wall between Jew and Gentile. Mm. And then in chapter three, you have this breaking down of walls between, um, you know, the, the church is be able to permeate between the wall of death and life. Uh, the reason why Good. I say that is uh, what, what we have here in chapter three, it talks about the mystery of Christ. 
was not made known to people in other generations. I'm reading in verse five, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So in, in past times, it was not known. And then what you have uh, in, in verse nine, it talks about how the gospel is, is not just though to people on this earth, but it talks about this, that the wealth of Christ uh, says will be illuminated for all the administration and the mystery hidden from the ions or the ages uh, in God who created all things. This was done in order that now through the church, the intricate wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So you have through the church, this mystery of Christ is made known to these entities in the heavenly realms. And Ephesians has this unique phrase that talks about in the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms. And it's a, it's a space where there's both good and evil. Uh, and what I think is very interesting is that it's the church that is the vehicle that is, it's not just preaching Christ to humans. It's also permeating that, that barrier between the seen world and the unseen world. Mm -hmm. And it's actually um, spreading the gospel to, I guess you could say spirits or entities in the other realm, in the heavenly realm, this unseen realm that Ephesians is quite obsessed with. It talks about it in chapter one and continues all the way through chapter six. Very good, which is one of the reasons that we might think of it as a temple text. And and I think of like covenants and, and ordinances because those that's the place and those are the things that transcend both realms, right? Then can connect right. and, and permeate as I like your word permeate, permeate both realms. Right. I, I just think it's so it's so beautiful that it's uh you know, it's this church. We're we're not just a one church on earth now, we're not just united. Jew and Gentile, but we're also united across this veil of death to uh, Christ has really become all in all, as the text says. And now we're we're one church uh, in every dimension. Yeah, which I yeah. think is really beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. And and that's certainly, I, I think, what temple work is about. Right. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very good. Right. You see the same theme going in, in chapter four. Um, where you have this discussion of unity. Um, and it talks about, so in chapter four, looking at verse four through 11 or so, it says, you know, there's one body and one spirit, just as you have been called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, father of all. It's this unity, this oneness that is uh, so central to this text. And, and what it does, then now it shows how Christ brings about this unity. And one of the ways that he does so, it talks about how Christ ascended, but he also descended. So in verse 9, he descended to the lower regions of the earth. Now, there's three ways to interpret this that people have put forth. The first is that he's, this is talking about his descension when he was, when he became incarnate. Right. And like second, we would call it his condescension, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, the second is that it's talking about um, some people have proposed that he's talking about uh, sending his spirit and endowing people with spiritual gifts. That one's less uh, compelling. And then finally, 
uh, and more consistent, I think, with the actual Greek is that it's talking about going to the underworld, yeah, and and going actually down to what you read about in in First Peter, and actually preaching to the the you know the spirits who at one time were disobedient, like First First Peter says. Um, and so you have Jesus; he's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not just here, but he's also bringing that same doctrine down even to. Uh, those in the underworld, that same doctrine that is in heaven, on earth, and below. We now have this unified church um, across all spheres and dimensions, which I think is really beautiful. It is a beautiful idea. And again, so so much what we're thinking. I mean, think of uh, how President Nelson keeps talking about, you know, the covenant is important. And what we're trying to do is get everyone in the covenant. And in this life, people on the other side of the veil, we're trying to get to the covenant uh, and this covenant is what binds us to God. So it's, I, I think he's saying really in some ways the same thing Paul is saying here, right? This is a, a unity that we are trying to create with God that crosses uh, all people, all places, all times, uh, all phases of our existence. Uh, uh, this covenant needs to bring us all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, once, once Paul bring, once Paul talks about this kind of unity, there's then this discussion of, of, household codes um mm. it's almost like uh the body of christ now where there's different roles for different people uh that you know um you know in order to be this kind of formative union we all have to be we we all have individual roles that we need to uh fill uh, and that's really central to unity is that sometimes not everybody's all the same at every at every every juncture um, right. but we each pull our own weight and we're able to kind of create this oneness in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, it just as an example, I've had, uh, in the ward I'm in now, uh, the man who was Bishop a little while later was the, uh, primary pianist. And, uh, another one was in the uh, former Bishop was in the nursery, right? Uh, we all play different roles and we play them when and how we're asked. Uh, and we all contribute to the whole in in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know how much you want to talk about the household codes, but there's uh, um, however much you'd like. I, I don't I don't find them very interesting, to be honest, but uh, they're a little bit, you know, discussions of different roles that people play um, and they're not uh, terribly simulating. But I do think that there's a general principle that's important that we you know, each need to pull our own weight and everybody has their own role. And of course, these change as society changes and we don't always directly apply certain, uh, you know, regulations uh, such as the the man is the head of the woman or things. It's unfortunate statements like that were made in certain contexts that we, you know, uh, don't necessarily apply all the time. But I do, do think that yeah. there's a general principle that we have different roles to play uh, and everybody needs to be, you know, a team player. Good. And, and uh, I mean, I, I, let's not delve into that one too much, but maybe we can just say, you know, today we have, this is the beauty of living in latter days and having latter day prophets that we can find out what God is telling us today. So we talk right. about full and equal partnerships uh, and that is uh, what we're supposed to be doing. Right. But, um, but when he talks about the marriage, the, the, 
overarching principle as he talks about the roles is, well, do it how Christ would have done it, right? And so right. love your your husband or love your wife and take care of your husband or take care of your wife the way Christ would the church and so on. And so that, you're right. We have these different roles, but there's um, a Christ-like living code uh, that should apply to all of them, to every role we have. Whatever it is, uh, we should do it the way Christ would do it. Is I think that's kind of the major message I take from the way He talks about these different roles. Right, right. Um, and I think, uh, unless you want to talk more about that, we can get into chapter six and, and talk about the armor of God because um, here we have we we've we've discussed each individual role, and now we're back uh, to where everybody needs to be putting on this armor of God in mm -hmm. this struggle against the adversary. Uh, and it talks about, so this is in chapter six, verse 11. Uh, again, is my translation, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, because our battle is not against flesh and uh, blood and flesh, but against the rulers, authorities, lords of this, of darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, that discussion of the heavenly realms, which is unique to, uh, to this text. And it talks about taking on the full armor of God and, and really preparing yourself for this life, which is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a battle at times. Um, and again, we have like what we talked about at the beginning where, you know, there is this sense that Christ has conquered death and we do get this earnest or, or, or down payment of joy sometimes. But then he ends this text by saying, yeah, but life's a battle. We, you know, the war isn't totally won, even if we know it's going to be won. We still need to, you know, it's still the second quarter. Even, yeah. You know, if we have a large lead, we still got to, we got to run this thing out. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot left to do here. Um, I think and, there's really, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and, I, and I love that. I mean, he's already at this point talked a few times about the uh, the forces that are against us. Right. And the things mm -hmm. that we've left behind and we may have left them behind, but there's still forces against us. Right. So you, we may have left behind the flesh, the desires of the world, but those desires and those powers are still arrayed against us. And frankly, mm -hmm. we are not going to withstand them on our own. This is not a battle that we're up to on our own. We need to be uh, in the armor of God with the, his his sword, uh, which is the word of God. Mm -hmm. with, without that, uh, we, there's no surviving this battle. Right. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's only in him and with his power, which really reminds me of when President Nelson talks about uh, you're not going to survive uh, at the last days uh, if you don't have the, the revelation. Right. Spirit of revelation or the Holy Ghost in your life, if you're not receiving revelation, which I find an interesting and I've just am noticing this now, but I find that an interesting parallel to this. This so where we have in verse 17 of chapter six, and it says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right. And I would mm -hmm. I take the word of God as I read it in Second Nephi 31 and 32 and so on to be everything God teaches us through the Holy Ghost. And sometimes the vehicle is the scriptures, sometimes it's modern prophets, and sometimes it's just those thoughts coming to us. But it always has to come through the Holy Ghost. So that which is revealed to us by the Holy Ghost really is the word of God. Mm -hmm. And that's what President Nelson is telling us we need to have with us if we're going to survive these last days. And I think that's what Paul is telling us in verse 17. We mm -hmm. need to have with us if we're going to survive the, the battle that is real and that is around us. Uh, however far you've fled from Babylon, it's still there and it's still going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, 
if you'll indulge me really quick, right? I think I think there's yeah. something also interesting going on here um, in these verses. It talks about um, putting on the armor of God, and this might not be um, simply a metaphor. Uh, there were, uh, you know, in, in early Christianity, when you would be baptized, for instance, you would you would go down into a font, you would come up, and we know you would put on new clothing. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul mentions this, but you also find this in the second and third century sources talking about baptism there's this kind of new clothing but throughout ephesians there's this interesting discussion or, or kind of references to um what i think is a ritual uh that is underlying the text so if you look back in chapters one and two it talks about it mentions sitting you know uh christ sits uh in these eternal realms and we we have conquered with him and we sit with him uh, and then if you look in, in the end of chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, it talks about walking. And it mentions the word walking eight times. Uh, and I've never now, noticed this. Here at the end uh, in uh, in chapter 6, when it's talking about the armor of God, it, it mentions the word stand three times in two verses. Mm. So you have this kind of evolution of sitting, walking, standing. Mm. And then they're girded with this kind of armor of god now what we know about early christian worship uh from a lot of different sources the didascalia from Egeria's experience in jerusalem in the fourth century uh from a host of different texts uh, there's there's a this uh in a monastery in egypt there's this discussion of what happened in the, in the uh white monastery mm -hmm. um there's there's a lot of different uh descriptions of what of early christian worship where it's kinetic and it's kind of ambulatory you have these stages where you uh, will sit you will stand walk uh things like that so i think what could be behind this text is actually a what i would call kinetic piety or uh some sort of actual moving ritual where you you might be sitting and it talks about how we sit and have conquered with christ that uses that word it's almost like in these movements kind of like we do in the temple you're really participating in right. ritual with uh christ and 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 with each other and then you walk and it talks about through in these chapters walk you're walking in the newness of life you're not walking right. like you once did you don't walk and, like uh, gentiles you walk like this and then at the end you are standing and putting on this armor of God. Uh, and if that's behind those texts, I mean, think I think that would be a very beautiful setting. And I think that also would potentially explain why this is sort of a general text. This is almost a ritual text mm -hmm. that we are reading and it's for everyone. And that's why it's not, there's no greetings. There's no um, discussion of any particular uh, situation that, that Paul's, addressing but instead this is something to to all people uh and it, it discusses discusses how we are now one church not just in this uh realm not just in the terrestrial world but also in all you know in the spiritual realm as well the church has permeated all bounds and now it is what, what he says over and over god has filled all in all or the church is the fullness now uh, throughout the entire creation so i think that could be behind this text there's obviously not enough evidence to prove that that's the the context from which it comes but i, I do think that that 
there are allusions that, that hint in that direction. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, rituals are symbolic actions, right? They're, they're, they're where we do movements that, uh, and we are part of the symbol that uh, teaches a theology through those symbols. But uh, this, I, I think you make a, a pretty interesting case for uh, the notion that this may be Paul or whoever it is, uh, explaining again, if people have forgotten, or I don't know if it's again or not, but uh, making sure people understand some of the the theology, some of the the teachings that would go behind rituals that may have just become ritualistic, as it were, right? And then that was one of the problems that uh, these circumcised, we could say, the, the Jews, uh, uh, the children of Israel had often had, is that they would so often um, get into performing the rituals and forget about what was really behind them. And I think it. we all have, uh, a, a, that's a danger for all of us, even in something as simple as the sacrament. It's pretty easy for that to become a movement you do without really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, this may be helping everyone to remember, this is what it was really about. These are the most profound and important teachings that we have. And it, it stems from these rituals, and it's something that everyone in the church needs to be thinking about and understanding if we're really going to be unified with each other, with those in, in other realms, and most especially with God through Christ. Yeah, well said. Well, that's wonderful. I, and I had not uh, recognized kind of that um, standing, walking, or I mean, sitting, walking, standing, right? And as I'm thinking about it, I might have to explore this more at some point because I can see some parallels with uh, Revelation and and this idea that you, uh, you're you going to have to leave some things behind, but eventually you can stand in the presence of God never to go out again kind of a thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Being compared to a pillar uh, that stands there and so mm-hmm. on. So that's uh, that, that's an interesting thought to, I'll have to pursue sometime. But uh, yeah. uh, thanks for pointing that out. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- you've, uh, you've made Ephesians come alive for us. Well, thank you, uh, Phil or Dr. Abbott. This is this is really, I always say it's just good, clean fun, and, and it is. Uh, you've helped me think through uh, in my own life how to uh, leave behind things, how to be changed, how to uh, enjoy the earnest uh, money that we've had, the, uh, the earnest spiritual endowment that we've had in anticipation of greater things, how to want that more, um, and how to uh, want to continue to progress uh, both in covenant ritual and in the way I am in life uh, towards uh, greater unity with you and everyone else and, and God uh, by turning through Christ. So thank you for that. Great. Thanks for having me, Kerry. It's great. Yeah. And to our uh, audience, we, we hope you've enjoyed it and that uh, if you found this to, to be meaningful, that maybe you'll find someone else that uh, finds it meaningful as well. And and this is kind of new for me to talk about this, but I have people who tell me I just need to that uh, this will get spread to more places if people do liking and sharing or commenting or whatever those things are that you can do that I don't really know much about. But if you can do those things, apparently that uh, helps more people get the good word and more people can learn from Dr. Abbott and, uh, and from Paul and from Christ. So thank you uh, very much to everyone.